Greetings and salutations, board game fans. This is the Dice Pirates episode 19. We're going to be talking about some cooperative games this week. I am your captain, Ian, as always, joined by Matt. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Why are you put on airs? Salutations. Look at you getting all fancy. <laughs> did, you get, did you get a promotion? Are you up for Admiral? I'm just, I'm trying to pretend to be better than I am. Let me live my life, Matt. I'm here to just, uh, you're trying to climb the ladder and I'm here to bring you down a notch. I'm trying to keep you humble. Look, it, it is what it is. We're also very honored to have Gnarly Carly here. Carly, people may know you from Instagram. You have a, a very large account that's grown a lot over the last year. Tell us, uh, thank, first off, thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate having you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what your history with games is. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I've been playing games now, or like modern board gaming active in that community for the better part of eight years or so. So not ex not exceedingly long. I basically was introduced uh, to gaming by someone in my during my first year of undergrad. They dragged me along to the board game club at the school I went to. And I started off with a lot of light fare. I was very intimidated to like jump into anything like hefty. But after a bit, so basically someone taught me Terra Mystica and I was befuddled and excited. And the rest is history from there. Um, that was pretty much what launched me into the big old gaming lover that I am today. Terra Mystica is a great, like, uh, if you can play Terra Mystica and love it, you're in the club. Because that game is like bananas. And especially if uh, they didn't teach me any of the rules properly. They were just like, you'll be fine. I think they just didn't want to because it is like a heavier teach. And and I was like, well, yeah. we're placing houses. Does it matter where I go? And they're like, don't worry about it. They immediately <laughs> boxed me in the corner. Like I had a horrific first game. Um, but, you know, here I am. I, I wanted to figure it out. So. Oh, that's fantastic. And I mean, you know, we talk a lot about gateway games, but Terra Mystica, like once you get Terra Mystica, everything is kind of a step down from there, basically. It's like, oh, I, I know this, but I don't have to worry about those 10 other things. Oh, this is easy. Every game has still felt different. And I still feel like I had a huge learning curve for different kind of mm -hmm. mechanics. Terra took me a while because I didn't kind of have that background. But that was also one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much, because I felt like I was exploring all of these different paths. Um, so, yeah, that was my gateway. Tell us a little bit about your kind of experience being in the Instagram community, uh, the board game Instagram community. I know that your account has grown a lot in the last year or so. Kind of what made you want to get involved in kind of posting about your, your gaming hobby and reviewing games and stuff like that? So there's this wonderful person called Ryan who is Meeple. The, the Meeple Among People is his uh, handle on Instagram. And he was the first board game account I ever stumbled upon. I have a personal account. I don't use it. I've never used it, but I found, but I found Ryan somehow, and I don't remember how exactly, but I basically messaged him and started talking to him about games because I was just like enamored at the idea that someone was online and posting about games the way that he was. And it turns out there was a whole lot more than just Ryan, but I didn't know that. And so I started wanting to engage more with the gaming community online based on like his experience that he was telling me about. And so I was like, should I make an account? Like, I kind of want to make a gaming account because I didn't want to do my own personal account as a gaming thing because most of the people in my personal life wouldn't be interested. But also, like, I, I just kind of wanted it for a place for me to, like, geek out about games. And so Ryan kind of encouraged me. And so then I was just screaming into a void like, hi, I'm Carly and I like games. And a lot of people responded. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I get started. I didn't start it to do reviews or some of the other things that I'm doing now. I do some like more proper reviews or game giveaways. Most of it was just me talking about my life and the games that I play. 
And that's still kind of the core of what I do. Um, just sometimes it's a little more uh, engaged in a way that I, I didn't anticipate being um, when I first started posting. I'm actually really curious as to if you feel like your relationship with board games has changed over the past year, as maybe you've gotten more people, do you start to think about games and approach them in a different way? Sometimes. I think what can be interesting is when I have obligations to play certain games or when I've agreed to play certain games because I'm playing less of certain game, like maybe one game four times in a given week when I first get it and kind of spacing out those plays more as I have other content to try that, like that I have to get done. Um, so that changes a little bit of my relationship with games, but otherwise not particularly so. It's still something I very much enjoy. Um, I've always been the rule book person for my house, so that's not, not nothing new. Um, so taking on more games has just been, I have more games in my life. <laughs> yeah, that's so. awesome. But yeah, but maybe what hits my table is slightly impacted, I would say, just because um, I have a lot more new things in my world, but also just some of that obligation aspect as well. Well, we're super excited to have you here. We're going to go ahead and jump into things. And as always, we're going to start out with our soapbox. And Matt, I know you have something that you wanted to talk about. Yes, I have a hot take. I'm ready to drop it. Uh, okay. So we are big Sushi Go fans in our uh, board game group, and I know that's kind of a that's, a, that's an old warhorse standby like a party game for a lot of groups, but we we love it. It's always been kind of our palate cleanser at the end of some ridiculously long uh, convoluted session, like let's just let's do a hand of Sushi Go. But we recently got Sushi Roll into the mix, the new uh, dice uh, rolling variant from uh, Game Right that retains almost all of the classic Sushi Roll gameplay, but uh, replaces cards with uh, big chunky dice. And I'm a big, I'm, I'm an on the record fan of big chunky dice, and uh, I am prepared to say that Sushi Roll is the better game uh, by a significant margin. And here's why. Dice rolling is just a better mechanic than card drafting. Just full stop. It's just more exciting because dice... Carly, I see your face. Go, <laughs> go on this journey with me. Dice rolling is not a better mechanic than card drafting. Even if you want to argue in this niche circumstance, you would sell me way more on this idea if you were just like, for this specific game, with this comparison, it works better. But in general, no, you're absolutely wrong. I'm not, no. I'm not biting on that. <laughs> Well, you're entitled to your wrong opinion. It's fine. But like, but you are objectively wrong in that. <laughs> well, let's let the science speak for itself. Okay. 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 Hit, me, I, hit me with, hit me with your science. I don't have any science, so I'm going to make some up. Oh, uh, I, even I, better. I, Bullshit I, me. Bring yeah, it on. exactly. So I'm here we go. of social deduction. Fool me away. Try. Yeah. All right. Here's, here, so here's my problem with Sushi Go. And actually, I don't actually have a problem with Sushi Go. I love it. But Sushi Go, like all card drafting games, is borderline solvable right like it's if you're good enough at memorizing the cards and the cards are passing around it, not everyone has this sharp a memory but hypothetically you actually could learn the exact placement of every card in a single session of sushi go and other than the hidden information of what was played immediately you can pretty quickly start like sussing out your strategy so it becomes a solvable game like uh like, like chess like there's certain patterns that you can pick out and you can get good at and that's a great fit for certain type of gamers but sushi roll turns the whole thing on its head because it's open information what set of dice that any individual person has but then when they pass it to you unlike in sushi go you're not just being handed a deck of cards they pass you their dice and now you have to re-roll them which means anything's possible and that sudden bit of like chaos in the mix is 
Mwah, chef's kiss. Like it's just perfect to make a game that's a little bit sushi go at its worst is a little bit mechanical, and sushi roll is just chaotic enough to be exciting because you can never quite refine your strategy. You can know that like I've got the nigiri dice, but I don't know exactly what nigiri I'm going to roll this time. And so then using the added mechanics of forcing of like rerolls or swapping dice with an opponent, all of that becomes very tricky. It's just a more exciting game, and it's less. It's it's less. What am I trying to say? It's less bland. It's just, it's got a little wasabi on it. That's what I'm looking for. It's sushi with a little bit of wasabi. Oh, I love that. If the audience could see my eye rolls. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they, they could hear it. It was like yeah. an audible I was eye just roll. Heavy breathing. My eye roll. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my you know, goodness. I, I'm incredibly happy that somebody else is here to call you out on your ridiculous takes, Matt, because <laughs> I've, I've rarely heard a colder one. So, look, sushi roll is a fun game. Look, it's, it's sushi roll's great. I like sushi roll. Like you said, basically the same idea. You're just getting dice, you're rolling them, and you take one and you move the rest of them on. It's very fun. I love the conveyor belt. It's you know, very evocative. But it's fundamentally different, and it takes away a lot of what I really enjoy from Sushi Go. So one of my biggest things that I enjoy about Sushi Go is kind of the sort of social deduction aspect of the game. You're looking around at the table, and you only have a certain amount of information on what's in the cards. You don't know what is out there at any given moment. So you're kind of playing sort of a statistics game, but you're also playing sort of a, okay, well, if I take this, what are the chances that somebody else takes it just to, you know, screw me over? Or if I'm picking this, will somebody else, you know, maybe down the line go for a similar thing? What can I get away with? Those sort of things. So you have to play more of a statistics game and you don't have everything available from the outset. So you're kind of trying to figure things out. With Sushi Roll, Everything is available right at the beginning. You see the dice that are on the table. There's no hidden information. You know it's available. So you may know that you're going to get something. You may know you get a nigiri next turn. But like you said, you don't know what it is. So all it turns into is just a whole bunch of chance. And I'm not as big on that because I like that in Sushi Go, you do control your own destiny to a certain point. You can go for a strategy, and that may not work super well, but you can't control it to a certain point. Have you guys played Sushi Go Party? Yes, that's my preferred. Okay. That's my preferred version I do too, of Sushi because Go. There's, there's so many of those nasty cards that you could end up with as well, and that is also a factor that I feel like. That's the version that we play. The draft. Yeah, the cutthroat version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the best of them. I, I want I want to hate you viscerally by the end of Sushi Go. Yeah, it does get it gets nasty uh, a little bit. But he, okay, here's my here's my response to your response, and then I, we, we won't spend all episode on this. But uh, you had a well reasoned argument, Ian. You also used the phrase statistics game like four times, and that's super boring. That sounds so boring. It sounds so boring, right? Like the, uh, the sushi go is uh, fine, and sushi roll is fun, like really fun. Well, and statistics games can be boring, I should say. I think there's so many games that if you like try to count out your points or to do all of the calculations that they can be very unfun very quickly. That's one of the reasons like Scythe has that rule set that if someone's taking too long to like calculate, you can like reduce their point. popularity. Um, so I think there's so many games that have the potential to be unfun if people are too nitpicky about them. I think you should play Sushi Go properly uh, with booze and friends who don't suck, and then it'll be fine. Exactly. <laughs> so Sushi Go, yeah, like all drafting games can become so analysis paralysis, and Sushi Roll 
just livens it up. Obviously, to be fair, th- both the games are really good. There really isn't one that's yeah. better. I think, uh, obviously, Sushi Roll like speaks to me because of my innate love of chaos, not really spending a lot of time analyzing what I want to do. I-, I thrive in just chaos. So the throwing the dice down and just figuring out, all right, what what is this? Like, what am I dealing with now? I love that. I'm a sucker for dice game anyway. We played that and Champions of Midgard on the same night, and it was a dice of Palooza, and I had a blast. I think I'm just riding a dice high. Okay, that might just be where you and I diverge. I I am a broad lover of a lot of different types of games, but dice just do not woo me, typically. Oh, man. Okay, you're coming back on for a future episode. We're going to have the great dice debate. Because I think dice Uh, is like one of the great... uh, We don't have to do this. No, 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 no. no. I meant it was just me reconciling with who you are as a human being. It wasn't... uh, No, 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 no. no. It's fine. There are plenty of games that I think dice are incorporated well. There's so many games that I love that would not be the same without them. Yeah. Just in general, not my favorite. It is, it is, I think, my favorite thing. If you give me a game with a little bit of light mass chaos, I'm, I'm there for it. So Strategy over luck any day for me. That's uh, Though I do like luck on occasion. All right, so that's my, that's my hot take. Carly, I wanted to ask you about something that we mm-hmm. saw on your Instagram story recently that I was really curious about, and that is you got to play uh, Blood on the Clock Tower in person for the first time in probably... Uh, a year ever maybe i don't know i know ever. you yeah you you spend a lot of time playing that and documenting that on your account and so what was this like tell us all about it yeah so my friend noel uh i met him at a board game meetup like a local meetup uh in the before times in the pre-covid times but yeah. just before we had been friends for about three weeks and i went over his house one day because my wi-fi was out and we were doing work together and he introduced me to blood on the clock tower and we were so excited about it. We were watching, we were engaging with it, and we're like, we should host it. The Kickstarter has not been fulfilled yet, so we were going to do like a print and play or like something we would make ourselves to be able to play with other people. But we had this like all squared away that we wanted to play and we wanted to make it happen for ourselves. And then the world shut down and I was like, okay, see you in a week. And then we did not. Um, and so we started playing online together, um, probably not till August. So yeah, we said goodbye to each other mid-March, mid to end of the March is when like things shut down near us. And then it was like, bye. And then in August, he was like, hey, we could try this online via Discord. And so we'd been playing, it be kind of became our pandemic staple, but we had kept talking about like, there's so many different dynamics of in-person play, though Discord is awesome. And so we finally, about, I guess it was almost two weeks ago now, maybe a little less, got to play i hosted about 20 people at my house for an in-person game day of blood and we played three games and it was wonderful fantastic so yeah just being back with other humans in person has been great i I, i'm fortunate to live in a house with a lot of other gamers but to to have something like that to be able to host an event and do a potluck i'm a big event hoster in general it was it was just a complete joy and and all there's so many little moments that just wouldn't have been able to happen on discord that it's it's a phenomenal game but it was designed by uh steve to be in person and it was it was just so good it feels like that would be the perfect game in some ways to like celebrate like coming back together as community because that is a game uh for those who don't know and i haven't played it, i don't know a lot about it but it is a social deduction game it's what it, i mean is werewolf kind of a fair starting comparison but yeah, like bigger i mean yeah, so I, I, I've talked to the designer a bit too. Um, and actually before it was called Blood on the Clock Tower, it was just kind of like Steve's werewolf mod. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but so the th- key things that I think are really important when you're talking about Blood on the Clock Tower, like the things that highlight it and kind of separate it as its own beast are, one, every character has an ability. There is no generic villager. 
that doesn't necessarily mean it's helpful to your team or that you will have all your life, but while you are living, you basically have this ability. Um, some are information getters, some are protective roles, all of these things. But the big deal is there's certain proportions of different types of characters, both good characters and bad characters. And it's kind of a logic puzzle to figure out what's going on. There can't be more than a set number of certain types of characters, categories of characters. So that's kind of how you do that dance. So it's much less, is this person lying to me? It's um, there's going to be definitive things you can kind of figure out and like worldviews you can have. But also once you're dead, you're still in the game. You get one more vote for the rest of the game. You can still talk and participate as openly, which I think is a really special mechanism. And I feel like, the, and then there's a moderator who actually makes decisions along the way that can really impact the game. And I think those three things in particular really made it stand out as just in, re, like really elegant social deduction to me. Yeah, it really seems like it has a lot for different types of gamers because it has some light role playing. If you like that, if you want to get into your character, it's got that a little bit of statistical analysis because you're figuring out how many of these different roles are in play and who's who. So it sounds like it could really appeal to uh, a crowd, different types of folks. And, so. and the evil characters' roles are like pure chaos. You like chaos. I love chaos with social deduction. My favorite thing. So there's the evil team basically wants the demon to survive till the end. Uh, but there's demons and then they have minions who support them, don't care if they win or, or if they live or die, they win with the demon. Um, and though being that character is my absolute favorite because they all have special abilities that just are pure chaos. And they can be those chaos agents who don't care if they die, but just want to basically distract enough or distort people's view of the game enough. And that's just my favorite thing in the world to be. And I got to be it right away when we played in person. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was a poisoner who basically makes other people's abilities malfunction. Well, that looked like a blast on your Instagram story, and I wanted to ask you about it because it is just, it's exciting that we're getting finally to have those types of experiences as gamers. Is there anything you guys are hoping to get to the table? I guess, or I don't know how things are near you, but is there anything you guys are hoping to get to the table in person in particular? Well, I'll tell you one game. I, we just picked up in our group uh, a Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. Twilight Imperium is kind of our big game. At least once a year, we try to play uh, a massive game of Twilight Imperium. And uh, we've had the third edition the whole time we've been doing that. And the uh, fourth edition has made so many like improvements to the game and little quality of life adjustments. It's just a little bit better of a game. Cannot wait to play that again. Yeah, that's that's kind of my current like uh, bucket list game. It's just nice to be playing games with people again. You know, technology is so great that it allowed us to keep in this hobby during this awful year. But I missed cardboard. I missed cardboard. <laughs> I really missed cardboard. We we kept saying that we we had I had a gloomhaven campaign that tried to stay online for a lot of the year and and I don't know things would like fall over on tabletop simulator and I would just be like I <laughs> I need. I need I need cardboard back. I was like this shouldn't take this long. It was hard. Uh, but I'm again, I'm also very thankful for it. And honestly, it kind of pushed me into Instagram more. Um, and I've fallen in love with that online community so much. The uh, the first time we played Tabletop Simulator in the height of the lockdown and we were trying to play, uh, I think we were trying to play, uh, oh gosh, Clank. And uh, I dropped one of my cards off the table and it fell into the void of the internet. And like, you can't recover things that fall off your virtual table. And I was just like, this is awful. This sucks <laughs> so bad. I know there's people that love it, but I was like, that's not my thing. So yeah, that, that's an interesting experience for sure. Speaking of something that is not somebody's thing, we're going to go ahead and move on to our bitter board gamers segment, which is of course, 
It is the game we play where I'm going to go ahead and read some one-star reviews from some gamers who just didn't quite get the point of the game that they were playing. And you guys are going to go ahead and try and guess what game they did not enjoy. Are you guys ready? Bring it. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm riding a high. The last time we played this, I did very well. I feel like I won't. I, I like the game of what's this game, but oh, this is stressful. Your first review. This is, in my opinion, the Emperor's New Clothes of board games. Did not enjoy. The em- wait, what? The Emperor's New Clothes? Is you just, you're just, isn't that the, that's the guy who's naked and doesn't think he's naked, right? This is the naked man of board games? Like, did someone trick them into playing it? I, I mean, it has to be related to the actual game. What is, what is the most naked game you What's the most naked? I'm looking around. What's the game that makes you feel exposed? (laughs) I just thought that was a great start, but I am going to read you a second one that might help you a little bit more. Okay. Received as a gift from my wife. I can't stand this kind of European style crap to begin with, but the juvenile (laughs) art and graphic design made it a non-starter for me anyways. I traded it to a neighbor for a box of cigars. Okay. First of all. This guy, I'm, I'm angry. It was a gift from his wife. Why did he trade it for a box of cigars? I mean, you couldn't even, like, just put it on your shelf out of sentimentality. Like, what a goober. What a jerk. I don't like this guy. I'm mad. He also didn't need to mention the cigars. No, he didn't. <laughs> That's some energy. Um, okay, so uh, it's juvenile art, and, and it's the naked band. I... I actually don't, you know what? I feel less stressed about getting these things right because I, I don't feel like I know that. I'm going to I don't, gonna, I'm I don't have any naked man child games personally, but go ahead. What do you think it is? No, I have a theory. I have a theory that the that the Emperor's New Clothes it was a, a, a poor attempt to say it's a game that everyone thinks is awesome yeah. but isn't. So what is the Euro game that everyone thinks is awesome but isn't? With, with juvenile art, potentially. Asterisk. The juvenile art is like throwing me off because I think... I, I was tempted to say Wingspan as like a Euro style game that a lot of people love that some people don't. But how could you call? But that has such lovely art. It's so if Those you like birds. nothing, if you like nothing, it would about Wingspan. It would be the art. I'm at a loss on this one, Ian. I'm gonna guess uh, just out of the blue because I see it on my shelf. Clans of Caledonia. It is not Clans of Caledonia. I will admit, this one's a little bit harder because it's hard to find reviews that don't give it away straight from the get-go. That's fair. That said, I do have another one for you. All right. Legacy games are the downfall of the hobby. Oh. A Legacy Euro? Ooh. Oh, oh. wait, I know what it is. It's a game that you like, don't you, uh, Ian? Is, this, is, it a, is it Charterstone? It's not Charterstone. Oh, that game has juvenile art. It has like cartoony little people. It is actually. Oh, that, that would make sense. Cool. This game actually um, incorporates the debate that you two had earlier in the ooh, episode. Dice versus not dice. dice. Legacy dice. Does not include dice. Famously oh. does not include dice. Famously does not include dice. Wait, it's not Gloom. What? Is it Gloomhaven? It's Gloomhaven. <gasps> <gasps> Gloomhaven? What? Juvenile art? I love my gloom baby. Don't you dare. (laughs) Juvenile? I'm like staring at it. Very sad. It's not juvenile. It definitely has like a throwback kind of like 80s fantasy vibe. But I love that. The art is probably my favorite thing about Gloomhaven. I'm not like a total Gloomhaven like nut. I like it, but I don't love it. 
I'm just staring at the box of disbelief right now. I'm very also, upset. I need to know it, what kind of cigars this man traded for, because that's not a cheap game. And maybe that makes more sense, actually. The cigar clue was probably better in that, that I thought, like, for- That better I, be I, a I, nice thing of cigar. That's a three- Yeah, lucky neighbor is all I have to say. And yeah, and your wife was, your wife's awesome, though. I'll give you that. Um, she bought you a and, really cool game guy. And you are entitled to your wrong opinion. His wife looked on BGG and she said, what's the best game to get my husband? Mm. Got him Gloomhaven and he threw it out. It's the best game in the world. I do know people who don't like the game, but I, not for that reason. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on to our second game. All right. Our first review. It's just splendor with more steps, and the tension migrates from balancing optimization and tempo to a much less interesting worker placement dance. Splendor, worker placement. These are hard. Yeah, this is a, that's not ringing a bell for me. I'm thinking of like the drafting with like resources, but that, mm -hmm. that's like every worker placement. I don't know. Is it just, is it like an Everdell? It's not Everdell. Okay. Um, oh, I've never played it's a that. Little, it's a little bit simpler of a, of a game than that. Okay, um, that makes sense for the Splendor comparison. Yes, I, was yes. just, I was just trying to think of cards that, yeah. Can someone explain to me how this is not just Wingspan rethemed? You can change the theme, but all these games seem the same to me, and can't I best enjoy these things by going outside? I'm confused. Still feels like Everdell, just saying. But, um... I know it. Then say it. What is it? It's Parks. It is in fact parks. Oh yeah, that is that yeah. is a fairly that is a, I mean that is a okay, but I don't think Splendor is the game you should compare that to. I think Not it's at all. to Kaido. Yeah, it's to Kaido. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No. no one can see me. I don't know why I'm using my hands. I was walking <laughs> a path with my sing fingers and saying boop. <laughs> no one ever mentions Takaido when they talk about how amazing Parks is. It's Takaido's been totally forgotten, but it was the original walk down a path and collect yeah, it's, nice things. It was things. your competitive vacationing. That's all you needed. Competitive. <laughs> and if you're not competing on your vacation, what are you doing? Yeah. Are you even living your life right? I really enjoy Parks myself. You know, I'm not the most complicated game, obviously, but I just I enjoy the simplicity of it. It's easy to get people in, and it's just it's fun. Like there is enough of a puzzle. I actually chose this because I saw that you just recently yeah. learned how to play Parks. Actually, I, I Carly, what did you think of? I it? liked it. Um, I do want to play with the Nightfall expansion. Um, I hear that is like a good step up with the events and other things, but I, I really enjoyed it. I I played with a group, uh, meetup group when I was down in Richmond last week um just a game and hang with friends and it was it was lovely i i enjoyed it at the end of the night it was like good it's it's not your meteor game it will never be your meteor game but i don't need everything to be my meteor game no and if you can't enjoy playing with a tiny little wooden moose i mean like did your heart made of stone i mean come on that's a great little game and we did play it uh uh our fellow uh member of the dice pirates group max and i played it with the nightfall expansion about a month ago and yeah it did amp up the complexity like just enough it's not it's still not like a heavy game but if you're looking for something a little bit more meaty with a few other options for scoring and uh I, i'd recommend the nightfall yeah. expansion for I sure i think it's one that i will eventually add to my own collection um in time it isn't like my rush go-to but I, I did enjoy it and i think it would get some love on the table yeah i think if you're looking for a nice light game that is actually fairly easy for new people to pick up as well i think it's a i think it's a worthwhile game to give people i've I've taught it to a bunch of people who were new to board games and everyone's picked it up and really enjoyed yeah. it. And, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And when you buy it, you also a portion of the money that you spend on buying the game goes to support the national park. So you're even that's doing a great. good thing. All right. So that's bitter board gamers. 
some gamers that just really did not quite get the point of the games. And it always makes me sad because we love games. We want other people to love games. And it's always unfortunate when people just don't quite get it. But we're going to go ahead and move on to our main topic. We're going to be talking about some great cooperative games. And we will be back in just a minute. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to dive into our main topic here today, which is uh, cooperative games. We've uh, we've talked about a lot of cooperative games off and on on the show before, but I thought it'd be great for us to just do a whole episode on the topic because cooperative games are such a great uh, part of the hobby. I was thinking about uh, those like early experiences we all have playing games at home with our families and those like terrible like monopoly and like hyper competitive nights. And so many people bounce off the board game hobby because of like competitiveness and just having like a bad a, a bad game of Monopoly has ruined so many people for the hobby. And cooperative games are a great way for people to come to the table and play and enjoy board games that are maybe, I don't know, a little bit intimidated by competitive environments and like, uh, you know, that stresses them out. Cooperative games give everybody a common goal and you work together to overcome uh, an oftentimes ridiculously difficult challenge. Uh, some of these games are... Uh, can be brutally hard, but winning is all the more satisfying. Um, Carly, what do you? Uh, what's your take on cooperative games? Do you enjoy them? Are they a big part of your playing life? I I do. I love I love cooperative games. I would say I typically no. I I probably would say about fifty fifty split. I I enjoy a good competitive game. Sometimes I want that energy, but my house is really good for co op. Um, they all love co op. Everyone that I live with does, and so we 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 roll through them pretty quickly. They also suit themselves to campaign games really well. Um, you think of Gloomhaven, um, Pandemic Legacy, a lot of those I've really enjoyed because of the co-op aspect as well. It's something you're experiencing together. So yeah, I am very, very pro cooperative game. I actually find that sometimes even people who love the good uh, competitive spirit can like benefit from a little co-op too. When I used to work at a board game cafe in Columbus, we would it was a teaching cafe so we like to be able to teach people new games that they've never heard of no one when they walked in wanted a cooperative game i used to when i first started working there would ask do you want to play cooperative or competitive and it was a dumb question everyone wanted to compete when they first got there it's just right. kind of the, like the start of the night but then i figured out later i would like then push for something like lightly cooperative even if it's just something like forbidden island just to get people going because i i think i think it can be a really good shift to an evening um bringing people together in that way there's a lot of fun balance there as well, and that's something we'll talk about later with some games, that you can have a lot of games that have cooperative elements, but also do contain some competitive elements as well, which I'm sure we'll get into a bit. Yeah, so we're just going to uh, run through a few of our favorite cooperative games, give you some recommendations if you're looking for some new co-ops to, to add to your uh, arsenal. And as Ian was saying, some of these will be sort of a blend of semi-co-op you know, games with a light competitive element if you still... If you just have to have a winner at the end of the night. So, but our first two games are both uh, from designer Matt Leacock, and I thought it would be important to kind of mention him here at the top. If you're going to talk about cooperative board gaming, modern cooperative board gaming, you really got to name check Matt Leacock, who brought us Pandemic and Forbidden Island, and is sort of uh, both of those games kind of redefined like how we thought of cooperative games. That feeling of like the escalating threat that you get in like Pandemic and also in the Forbidden games is really uh, comes through in a lot of other uh, cooperative games that we're going to see on this list. So his sort of influence in kind of shaping the way we think of modern co-op gaming can't be 
overstated. And so uh, first up is we're going to talk a little bit about Pandemic Legacy, uh, which is a game that I've been dying to play. Uh, Carly, you've played this one. Tell us about Pandemic Legacy. Yeah, so I played Pandemic Legacy at the start of the pandemic. Very tastefully. Oh, great time. Very tastefully. Um, I did not have it prior. Things were shutting down and we ran to a game store and we're like, well, sure. <laughs> we're like, it's yeah. not great, but we're going to try it. But also we needed something to do because we needed something to do. And so we actually played through it very quickly. Um, I almost regret playing through it as quickly as I did just because I think it builds so nicely that I think returning to it with a group over the course of uh, more than two weeks um, would have like some satisfaction to it, even if you were playing like once a week. But we, we still we loved it. It was probably my best legacy experience thus far. But I yeah, I, I adored it. The evolving nature of it the way things I don't, I don't want to spoil it but the way things like shifted throughout it, it was it was a very cool story arc and thing to try to like work through together you also get like second chances in pandemic legacy specifically which is really nice you basically have two chances each month to like it, it, it's over the course of a year and each month is its own game um but you have two chances to pass each month essentially yeah i think it's really good to talk about pandemic legacy at the beginning of this because it's such a defining game it really kick-started the legacy game in many ways but also just normal pandemic is such a, a good cooperative game pandemic legacy still sits at number two overall just just behind gloomhaven and those are two co-op loves of my life i will say i i really adore those games yeah it's interesting that I just it just kind of hit me that the top two games of all time according to the ever fluctuating bgg rankings are cooperative games so clearly you know this genre really resonates with people for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned carly it creates this tremendous shared experience uh the sense of going on a journey having something crazy happen and marrying that with the legacy thing where you're having this totally unique story together because yeah, gloomhaven is also a campaign so it, it is it is it really it brings you together for the like the long haul and I, I know a lot of people have like their own house rules for those kind of campaigns like like jokes and things that build together and i think there's a beauty in that because it's gaming but it's also like you evolve as the game does too as a group how do you like just the core like pandemic like gameplay? Because I mean, to get through pandemic legacy, you're going to be playing a lot of pandemic. I mean, do you, do you enjoy it? Do you find it satisfying? Yeah, I, I do. I've had it for a very long time now. So I think what I struggle with is it's really hard for, I, I remember pre spirit Island Robinson Crusoe Carly who loved pandemic and got it to the table quite a bit. And now I don't think it sees nearly as much play because I have all of these other co-op games that I think provide more of a challenge and are a little just are a little richer um, now. And so I, I appreciate so much of Pandemic and I don't think I would have wanted to hop into some of those bigger co-op games as a new gamer. So I appreciate what it does as kind of a gateway co-op game, but I wouldn't I wouldn't call it my favorite anymore by by any means. One thing that I am curious about, because the vanilla Pandemic, just the base game, does lend itself to quarterbacking fairly mm -hmm. fairly easily. You know, the idea that you may have one person who either is just more vocal or has played the game, has a better idea of what's going on, and they can tend to just sort of lead people around. And it becomes less of a cooperative experience mm -hmm. and more of one person just sort of telling everyone what to do. Does the legacy game address that in any way, or is that uh, still an no, issue? No, that, that could still be an issue. And this also goes back to what we talked about earlier, though, in the terms of who you're with and how they can be just unfun. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, because so when I actually taught these games back at a cafe, I would refer to them. Uh, I, I quarterbacking I had heard, but I referred to them as board game bullies myself. Um, a little a little harsher, but like for purpose, because when people are learning these games, I'm like, look, like there's always someone at the table who like gets it faster or like they know what's up and they see like the big things that could happen at the table. But I always say, let who's ever turn it is speak their mind, at least. Like, figure out what they think they want to do, share it with the group. And then, like, if you have a sentence of input, good. But if not, like, let things happen, because the whole idea is working together, too. Even however painful that can be, because it's not one person playing. Yeah, and you need people to make their own decisions and uh, because uh, they need to feel ownership over their turn. Like, that's a big yeah. part of just enjoying the board game. Like, I feel like I'm making a choice. And also, uh, they could do something that you never thought of, or even like a suboptimal move. Like if you've really played the game like a bajillion times, you feel like I know what they need to do here. They could do something different that makes the game uh, more interesting in a way that you didn't expect. Because like, oh, that's not a completely logical move. But you got to let it play out and let everybody do their thing. And like, you don't have to not speak your mind on occasion. I just think you should give people space to be able to be creative agents in in a co-op game. I mean, in things like Gloomhaven, you, you don't have that problem as much because people are managing their own hands um, and also because they have like side goals and other things and they can just ignore you. Um, and and I, I think people should be given somewhat of the same benefit of doubt in other games that you should be able to like be like, hey, maybe think about this because this is going to suck in a minute. But then at the same time, like if they don't do that, roll with it. Like, don't 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 be a jerk at the table. I think one of the things about co-op games that is important for people to if you're trying to introduce co-op games to a group that we hadn't played them before is you have to be okay with losing. If you're like really hyper competitive and it is like, you just, you have to win to have a good time that can turn you into a board game bully. But part of uh, some co-op games are hard and sometimes you lose. So you got to be okay with just enjoying the experience and going on a journey together. Sometimes you're not going to save the world. Most of the time in pandemic, you're not going to save the yeah. world. Actually. And things like time stories, like, or Robinson Crusoe or things like that. They're just designed to be brutal. Like you, you're going to probably lose. It's just how many times in a row. <laughs> the last point I do want to make, just talking about, you know, pandemic legacies, as you were saying, Carly, the story is really well put together and it tells a compelling story. And that's led to something that's really interesting looking at pandemic legacy because it's actually spawned a sequel in pandemic legacy season two and a prequel in pandemic legacy season zero that's not something that we've really seen a lot from other board games is the idea of a, a true sequel we've seen uh, alterations to yeah second editions and alterations but we've rarely seen sequels i think that's i think yeah, that's quite and interesting and i like that a lot up there with it too that has jaws of the lion mm -hmm. as a prequel and it will have frost one day as a sequel <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Actually, so I, I, I work with a lot of different companies when it comes to Instagram and those kind of things. But uh, I, I joke with uh, some of the people I live with. I'm just like, notice me, Isaac. Like, I want, I want Frost to be like, no. <laughs> Isaac, if you're yeah, listening, please. send Carly a Frost Haven uh, and the Dice Pirates. You know, why not? <laughs> Lump us in there. Well, so that's Pandemic Legacy, a great kind of foundational uh, co-op experience that really kind of, it, it did uh, set the stage for so many other cooperative games to come with that sense of the escalating uh, threat. And the other game that I wanted to mention that does that really well from Matt Leacock is Forbidden Island, which is, of course, also spawned two spinoffs, uh, Forbidden Sky and Forbidden Desert. Um, haven't played those, hear good things about them. I still think Forbidden Island has a place in any gamer's collection as a good 
true gateway to somebody that's never played a co-op before. It's quick to set up, quick to explain what's going on with the rules and what your various roles are. And it provides that tense kind of edge of your seat experience that so many good cooperative games give you. Uh, if you've never played it, it's basically your treasure hunters. You're trying to get four treasures off of an island that is rapidly sinking. And so on each turn, you'll flip over these uh, memory-like cards down to the flooded side. And you can try to shore up the island around you to like hold it together as long as possible, but you've got to eventually get these treasures, get on a helicopter, and get out of there uh, while using your various asymmetric powers that you uh, the different uh, classes and roles have. I really like it, and I think it's one of those things where, like I said, if, you've, if you're, your family, your game group's never done co-op, if you're really new to the hobby, I think that's a good one to look at. Yeah, I, I like the Forbidden games a lot. I personally have Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. And they still hit the table every now and then because for the same reason, I would say like Pandemic, Pandemic kind of sits in the middle where I think Forbidden Island is a little lighter fare. And then you have your your heftier ones. So sometimes even us who game quite a lot, like we want something light and quick and easy and co-op. And that is an easy go to or for introducing other people and those kind of things. I think it's, it's just a solid it's a solid little co-op game. Forbidden Island does a great job of getting across what's happening incredibly easily and incredibly visually, something that you do get in other games. I mean, Pandemic, you have your cubes that you can multiply, but Forbidden Island does it in a way that's very, very clear to see, unlike games like Spirit Island, where the board can just be very cluttered, and if you if you just look at it the first time, you're not going to know what's going on. A lot, a lot of games are like that, but in this game, it's like, okay, this is the normal side. I flip it over. It's flooded. There are cards you draw. Very easy to figure out. It doesn't take a lot of explaining, and I, I love that. Yeah, it's a game that once you learn it, it kind of just plays itself. Like you just kind of get in the rhythm you of up it. To legendary mode. That's what you do. <laughs> uh, or, or you never do that. You just win it on easy because I don't. I don't need that kind of pressure. We have life. won it on legendary once. We tried. We tried like four wow. times in a row wow. one day though. It, it was. It, I'm giving at you at that a... point. No, at that no, I don't. I don't deserve applause. At that point, it's luck a little bit <laughs> or a good bit. <laughs> It probably is. It's uh, it's lucky anyway on any level. That game, that game can be pretty brutal. That's one of those ones where you do gotta like, tell your group like, hey, you know, we probably we might not win this. We we might die horribly on this island, but we're gonna have a good time trying. And I do love that it's not long. I think that is great, even for like more seasoned gamers. Uh, if you're trying to set up a board game day where you want to play multiple games, Forbidden Island, I think is still a great choice for like a 30 minute experience. And it also comes in that metal tin, like Sushi Go do you party like does. That? I love a metal uh, tin. I think it's I think it's cool. I, I mean, I love a good box, but I think having a metal tin is kind of it's different. It's kind of neat. I like it. It doesn't stack itself well in a in a bookshelf. It does a stack. I don't mind it. I have a way I can store it, but it takes up more space than others because it doesn't go as easily. Yeah, I, I feel you. I feel you on that. It doesn't stack. I do. I will say, Game Right uh, puts great inserts. Mm -hmm. I'll just give them a shout out across the board. Yeah. I even have a lot of their kids' games for like my kids. Uh, you know, a lot of their games skew young, and great inserts across the board. Game Right, if anyone's out there listening. All right, so those those are two uh, games that I think you just really have to talk about if you're going to talk about cooperative games uh, because they sort of, in some ways, set the stage for like everything to come. And this next game is the one that uh, I've never played, but I'm fascinated about. It is critically acclaimed and notoriously very difficult. Uh, and that is uh, Robinson Crusoe, uh, Carly. Yep. <laughs> I love that what do you game. What do you love about this bad boy? So um, Robinson Crusoe is a difficult game, which has some basic mechanics and a lot of different flavor because of the different scenarios that they place that the mechanics overlay on top of. So 
in the given scenarios, which are all immensely difficult, they all have different flavor of what the characters are trying to accomplish. Um, and for that reason, you might need, basically, you'd need new strategies per scenario to actually accommodate it. And certain characters might be more relevant or more useful in different ways. But it is exceedingly brutal and really satisfying. And everyone kind of has their own special abilities they're managing, but also events happen and other things trigger that I think gives it a little more flavor text than most co-op games. Sometimes, like with Pandemic, it just ramps up in difficulty, but there's not really anything besides being like, oh no, now we have to shuffle this and it gets harder. Whereas in like Robinson Crusoe, I was building something and I did so in a risky way. Basically, you have like tokens you're allotting time to. And if you use two of them, it's not risky. And if you use only one, it is. But you kind of have to space out in order to get everything done because there's other things that make it hard too. And so I took my risk, I fell off, I like hurt my arm and now it's potentially infected and will cause a problem later. Or we decide to like go exploring and a puma comes back to camp or I have to spend the night outside of it and lose health like and people can die. And it's just it's it's brutally difficult, but it's so well themed and all of the scenarios are just so different that there's just so much content in that box that breaks your soul at every step of the way. That is, oh, I love the the point you just made. I hadn't thought about it. The way Pandemic does just kind of get harder because that's what it's supposed to do. It just, it just kind of escalates, but there's no sense of why. But then you describing that your choices and making a misstep causes the game to get harder. Oh, man, that is so much more thematic, and it just feels alive. Yeah, and it doesn't feel wrong, though, because like sometimes you just need to do it. And I'm like, I have to build this in a risky way. And I'm glad we built it, even if it means that I have this like other detriment potentially. It's just how those things kind of build up. And you're like, oh, no, oh, no. Like keeping this piece together. Can we get shelter in time? Do we have enough food? Ah, oh, crap. Like, like it's just it's it, it's just engaging as heck. There's even one scenario in the base game that's like the island isn't even real. It's a movie set. <laughs> and like, but you're still trying to I survive. And it, like they, they just do so many creative things within the same structure. And so I feel like there's so many games within this game. And all and there's a bunch of expansions for it too. That's just purely more content. Like it's and I there's one, uh, but there's one I can't even beat, and I can't. It's Cannibal Island, and it's killing me. But um, it's a good game. It's a very good game. That's one of my favorite things is when a game has scenarios that make the game harder or easier. Because I mean, you look at you know Pandemic, and you look at Forbidden Island, and the way that you make those games harder is you just draw more cards. And, you know, things happen faster. So it's more about how well do you react to them. But I like games that make it thematic. They really tie you into, oh, this is harder because. Yeah. And it gives you a reason to tie into it. I think that's and awesome. And I think Pandemic and Forbidden Island and all of those are really well themed for the fact that they don't have that. It's just an island sinking. It's sinking rapidly. Like, like that, that, that makes sense. Or a disease is evolving very quickly. But for Crusoe, it feels nice to know that, like... Yeah, why I'm exploring is doing all of these things. But they also have a lot more nuance in the types of actions that you can take. So not having played it, like uh, hearing you describe it, it sounds like time and like how you invest your time as a resource in the game for like yes. how you accomplish your different tasks. That's really fascinating. Can you kind of tell us a little yeah, more about so that? So each player has two pawns that they can use each round, which basically represents a day. Um, those are kind of your time and how you can allocate them. You can allocate them to different tasks. There are certain tasks that by default you need two people to do or two time slots to do, which can be both of yours or someone else's can join you. But other than that, if you do it by yourself, you can do it, but it's risky and you have to roll dice to potentially have an encounter, which could be negative. Some of them are fine, but or like it's fine for now kind of things and get shuffled in. But um, you could get hurt along the way if you do it risky 
whether that's from the event or just in general, or you might not succeed. Whereas if you use, take your time in doing that action and have the resources, you can kind of guarantee its success. And that's pretty cool. But there's also events in the game that can be like, hey, you can't even guarantee your success building at all. This happened. And so any build action you do now is risky for this round. Do you find that there are enough scenarios to encourage a lot of replayability? Yes, because I one, you're not going to probably pass most scenarios on your first go through. The first one is possible if someone gives you good advice, which is just morale just through the roof. But a lot of them are exceedingly difficult. And there is some randomness in the different items that you get and have options to build. That's another reason that I'm like, oh, this one time we played, these were the items available to us. And that's what in this item kept us alive. And now that item's not even in the next game I play. And I don't have that as an option. So there's a lot of replayability there. And yeah, between failure and then the scenarios, like there's seven scenarios in the base game. And that's a lot of content for how much time it'll take you to accomplish all of them. So a great value. If you're looking for something that's going to keep you busy for a lot of hours. And it can be solo. Uh, sounds like a good one. Yeah, I, I don't personally. I was about to ask that. Yeah, I don't personally solo, but it's one that I recommend for a lot of people who like solo games because it is that like challenging and engaging. But you, you could do it by yourself, though I think it's fun to do with other people too. Well, that sounds really cool. Robinson Crusoe, uh, a classic and generally regarded as really one of the great co-op experiences. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about some games that fit into that semi-co-op zone, which is where you can kind of get the cooperative experience with still a light competitive uh, experience where it's either like a trader or one versus mini mechanic. There's a couple of games out there that I know that do this really well, but one that I love is Dead of Winter. Still one of my favorite games, uh, one that I try to get to the table at least once a year. If it gets around spooky time, I'm going to put out there that we need to play uh, some Dead of Winter. I was thinking about my Dead of Winter experiences and why it fit in the co-op experiences that actually I've only I think I've only ever had a trader maybe twice in all the times I've played it. So if you again to kind of set it up, you know, Dead of Winter is basically the uh, rights free version of The Walking Dead. It's people surviving in a zombie apocalypse. And at the beginning of the game, you're given a hidden objective that you're going to be trying to compete, which gives it a little bit of a competitive feel all throughout. But somebody's might be a trader. There's actually a fairly low chance, unless you intentionally increase the odds of there being a trader in the base rules, there's actually a fairly low chance of there being a trader. And I've, and all the times I've played it, and I've played it a pretty good bit, I think there've only actually been a trader twice, which means most of the times that I've played it, it's actually been a cooperative game. But the specter of a trader looms <laughs> over the game so heavily that it almost always devolves into accusations and the sense that it's that there's a traitor even when there's not and uh we hilariously exiled ian once in a scenario that uh he still talks about bitterly uh <laughs> to this day just because i'm bad at the game doesn't mean i'm the traitor like, yeah just, just i mean we me thought he was trying to cause the colony to collapse it just turned out he's making bad choices we didn't know you know it uh, evidence felt solid at the time and uh frankly i do it again no, but it's just, it has that same pandemic-like quality of a threat that escalates and explodes as zombies build up on a location and eventually overrun. It has the asymmetric thing of playing different characters with unique and fun powers. It becomes a light role-playing-like experience as you try to, like, play through your character's individual objectives and uh, think through. And there's, of course, the thing that really separates it are these narrative moments that come. It's uh, famously subtitled a crossroads game. And so there are these occasional moments in the game where it triggers a crossroad card to be read. And you have to make a difficult choice uh, sometimes with no good outcome that all sort of like serves to to build this world and make it come alive around the table. Uh, I 
really, really, really like this one. Uh, Carly, what do you, what, have you played Dead of Winter? Yeah, what do you think I about it? I have Dead Winter. Win. I, I have Dead of Winter. Words are hard. Um, and I, I really enjoy it. It I, too, like the potential trader mechanic. I think any trader mechanic is really fun, <laughs> but potential yeah. is even better because there's a chance that we're all working together. There's a chance you have to trust me and I get to trust you and all of that good stuff. I know you can play it as a full co-op game too, if you really wanted, but I, I think, I, yeah, I, I agree. It's just, it shines and is differentiated from pandemic in that tension, in that wondering, in that trying to coordinate, like we all have these resources, but I want to do it all by myself because I don't trust you at all. And that like like and and that tension can be really helpful. And when the, the tr trader mechanism does hit, oh, it's so good. The the one time that I had a trader and he almost won, uh, my buddy Josh, uh, is still like number one board game moment in my life. Of all the years I've been playing board game, it's still my favorite thing. Is that moment when there was like a turn away from the colony collapse, and we all look up and realize that Josh has been hoarding cards in his hand, and for some reason building barricades in the police station. For some reason, what are you doing, Josh? <gasps> You know, the moment of like shock and reveal around the table. Uh, you can't uh, you can't recreate that. I mean, that's just that's board game magic. And I love it. And you're right. There are rules in the rule book for, for Dead of Winter to be played as a pure co-op. I've never done it. I can't imagine that it would be that fun. And I actually think it'd be very easy. Uh, it's not the most difficult game by co-op game standards to manage your risk if you're all working together. It's the threat of maybe not trusting your uh, co-players around the table that actually makes the game more difficult than it than it should be. It's it would be pretty easy, I think, to conquer even the most hard scenarios if you just all are like laser focused on completing the task at hand. Yeah, I would agree. I think the trader mechanism is really what brings it to life, and that's what it's designed to do. And yeah, it it's it's a great game. It, it's up there in my like all-time most thematic games and that it, it has that quality of like the world the game's trying to create really kind of comes alive around the table and you all start kind of feeling like it's happening. Another game in this vein that I know you wanted to talk about, uh, I don't remember if it's a trader mechanic or a one versus many, but it's Nemesis. Yeah, no, it's, it's a trader mechanism. And it is thematically incredible. It is, it is a storybook adventure. Every game that I've played has basically played out like um, its own little movie. But essentially, Nemesis is Aliens, the board game. But And you wake up um, from sleep and basically there's aliens aboard your ship. Someone's already dead. And you basically have your own goals for survival. But what, what is interesting in terms of trader mechanism versus the co-op is, in theory, all of us want to make sure that the engines are functioning and the coordinates are sent to Earth so that we can all have our ship in good standing, go back to sleep, and get to Earth safely. However, you get objective cards at the beginning of the game, and they all have different things like Dead of Winter that you want to achieve for yourself. Whether it's finding an egg in the intruder nest and keeping it as your precious forever, or wanting player two dead, um, <laughs> or, <laughs> or wanting to go to Mars instead. And so all of the same, like for the same reasons as Dead of Winter, we all have different things we're trying to get done that might distract us from the main things, but also there can be definitive trader mechanisms at play. Some people, like there's one mechanism that they just want to get items and get out. They don't care if the ship survives. They don't care if it goes to Earth. They can win by going to Earth, but they could also just get out in an escape hatch as the ship explodes if they initiate self-destruct. So there's a lot of different dynamics at play and you're kind of hedging bets over what you want to do and how you want to approach your goals. But you start with two and you pick one as soon as an alien shows up. And so what's cool is in this case and in many cases, if it's a trader goal, you have two on there. 
And so usually you can pick if you want to be a trader. And I, I think that's also really special. I say usually because I've had friends get two cards that were like inherently trader focused and they were like, well, like, who do I want dead? <laughs> but I, I think it's really excellent in that way because we could, again, we could all be working together. But even when we're all working together, there's still different paths that each of us could take. So I might care about you as long as I care about you, but otherwise I'm getting the hell out of here. We have we still have different goals in the end, and I, I it's 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 spectacular. If you have not played it, like it's so good. This one looks amazing. It's 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 really having a moment now. I see it a lot on board game Instagram. People playing it. It looks fantastic uh, with its components and just the overall feel of it really coming alive. I do like that you get two objectives and you could maybe opt out of the trader role. That's one thing about Dead of Winter that stresses me out is that somebody may really not want to be a trader and they get stuck with it. And then that's like a whole thing they've got to deal with. Like if you don't like the subterfuge and having to play a poker face for two hours, being the trader randomly could actually ruin your night. So I like that in some cases you could opt out of it. Yeah. You know, which is kind of nice. It works It works so well. I, I haven't had anyone who's been directly upset. And even the trader mechanisms that they are, it isn't necessarily counter to anyone else's goal, if that makes sense. Not in a huge way. Yes, like maybe I want to go to Mars and you want to go to Earth. And that could be a point of tension. But maybe also you just want to survive and you wanted Earth because that's how you can survive and Mars doesn't work for you. But you could do an escape hatch and we could both win in that way. Like, or like there's the escape pods, for instance. And once you're in one, there's two spots in each of them. You can choose to leave. And you basically have to roll to see if aliens are going to come like to show up every time you try to enter one. So there's been times when someone else is in the room with me and I'm like, bye bye like because i'm not i'm not risking it and it gets pretty much like exp exponentially more risky and so it's it's i don't know it's vicious and wonderful and usually i've never i don't think i've ever been a part of a game where more than one person has survived or like fully but it is brutal and wonderful i mean it feels like you have to bring up among us since that game's having such a moment is it, does it have a little bit of like among us vibes of like space people on a ship and traders i mean perhaps you don't always have to figure out the trader component though though like the focus is right. not who's a trader amongst us the focus is there's aliens here we are dying our ship is falling apart maybe it'll be covered in fire soon and it'll all just explode so it's it's more survival meets my own personal objective like I could be corporate minded and just want to do like a research thing really quick and then get out and go to bed. Like, but so we all it's way less. Do I hate you? But also I'm going to care about it because if you're repairing the engines and I don't think you're actually repairing them, I think you're breaking them down. Then that's something different. So that's why you care because you might have to triple check your work. It makes it harder because I don't inherently trust what you're saying you're doing. I love the limited like trust that you can have between people where it's like, we'll, we'll cooperate for a bit. You know, I know we're working towards maybe the same goal, but at a certain point, there's a little bit of a distrust there. And it sounds like you can have multiple. Can you have multiple traders yeah, in the game? Yeah, because it's trader only in the sense that the base goal is that we all kind of want to get to Earth and do that thing by default. Whereas, but there's a lot of different nuance in what could actually be what you want. We could all be fine just... Like the last game I played, we were actually none of us needed to get to Earth. We were all fine if we got on an escape pod and left. But we didn't know that right away. And you kind of have to play this dance of like, I'll help for now because I don't like I want to <laughs> like I want to stay together. I want to survive. I want you to have initiative to help me out when I'm in trouble. Like if I need an alien to die, then I might give you an evacuation key so you can get on an escape pad or I'll tell you I'll check the cockpit's coordinates just to help you so that you help me when I need it. It's it's interesting. 
I'm really excited to try this at some point because that does feel like sort of an, a step up and an evolution of sort of the dead of winter trader idea where it's one person fighting others. This one, it's, it's really like a we're all we all kind of have our own thing to do. And you recognize that that person very may well have something different, but you're not really working against them. You're just trying to use what they can give you for that moment in time. That, that's a cool twist. But it on also that. can be a time waster because I know like two games ago i played a lot of nemesis <laughs> like my friend cameron he immediately went to the cockpit to check what the coordinates were and i immediately was like oh no i'm doing the exact same thing like i don't trust you at all and we were both doing the same things so at the end of the game i like carried him to safety both of us are both the kind of people that if we have a mars objective oh we're picking the mars objective because i will betray you if i get a chance i want to so badly <laughs> like i want the goal where you die so much but if i don't have it yeah, I'll work with you. But <laughs> you got to trust me sometimes. And that's the problem. That does sound fascinating. Gosh, I want to talk more about that one. But we have like a we have an ambitious lineup of, of uh, games we want to cover. So and this next one is another one I'm dying to hear about. And it's a game uh, again that I don't that Ian and I have not had a chance to play. But we love Ryan Lockett, who brought us this and that's Sleeping Gods. Carly, what do you love about this game? Uh, what do people need to know about it? It is an open world adventure game, and it is oh so good, and I probably will play it tonight. I, one, it has 14 different endings. It is truly an adventure game story. There's a lot of different choices along the way. Games like Gloomhaven have like road events or cards that kind of give you choices, and there might be branching paths of the scenarios that you can do based on what you choose to do. But this is truly every event that happens, there's usually multiple things you can decide to do that will permanently change the game. There's been things that we've done where we're like, oh, that wasn't great. And then it like came back to haunt us later in like really brutal ways. But what's really wow. cool is you have these quests and objectives. You might talk to someone and they're like, hey, like go up north by this pole over here. And then there's a cave. And then in there you can get X, Y and Z. That's like intricate, like integral to like actually achieving the objective of the game, which is waking the gods. But in the meantime, I can do that, but I don't have to do that now or for a very long time i can just go over here because it looks cool and i can explore over there and maybe find other things that i might have to come back to anyway but you really can like the the game guides you through the story but in the, like but you can do anything you want you can go anywhere you'd like you just have to survive i am so so excited to play this game i'm glad that you brought it up because it's something that i've been looking at for a little while I am in love with Ryan Lockett yeah. games. I think he's Brilliant. one of the most interesting designers out there. I think he's doing some really neat things that you don't see with a lot of different people. And this game looks incredible. Just the, the design of it. I love the Atlas games that he's starting to come out with. You know, you have this actual book that you're moving through that gives you a different map to be on every time. You have a lot of the reading that he puts into his games with lovingly crafted yeah. stories. There's a huge tome that goes into it. It's beautiful. And what I really find like fascinating is... It reminds me of like an open world video game and that like each page you can kind of see things. So I can be like, oh, I want to go over there. There's like a weird structure here, or a bridge or something that I want to see that I can directly see. But also you have a map in the game that you can like start to take notes off and be like, oh, we need to kind of go north. And then maybe you get there and then and that's when you flip the page and can see like the breadth of it again. So it's kind of one of those things like like an open world adventure game where I could like see a mountain in the distance, be like, I want to go there. You can kind of do and feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And it's just just really cool. Another thing that I've seen mentioned about the game that I'm curious how that works, because I've, I've seen it mentioned that at any point you can stop the game, write down where you get in the logbook and just put it away. You don't have to commit to a certain time. There's no end state. You can just play for an hour, play for 30 minutes and then put it away when you want. 
it's it's something that I've been struggling with. So we actually have it perpetually set up in the corner. It's something that we can bring right onto the table if we want. But I was even still considering trying to get like a folding table and set it up more permanently. Because yes, you can do that. You can pause whenever. But there's a lot of little things to set up. So it's still, it would be a chore to get it out and only play for a couple minutes. Whereas if I have it out on a table, like semi-permanently, I would I would play for just a couple minutes at a time as long as you're with the group and doing those things. It's... Yeah, it, it, you can really, truly stop. I would say after a person's turn would be the easiest thing to do. It's both nice and maybe a little not satisfying sometimes in that way, though. Because like Gloomhaven, I can play and I'm like, we can do a scenario and then go to bed. Whereas that one, it's kind of more up to you when to stop, which sometimes is nice because I can be like, yes, I can only play for 20 minutes. And other times it's kind of a little more daunting in a weird, men- in like a weird mental way. I don't know. Yeah, because when would you stop, you know? Yeah, like you, there's probably a real tendency to be like, oh, maybe I'll just go to one more location yeah. and just kind of see, you know? But it is beautiful. It is really engaging, and I'm excited to probably play more of it tonight. It's exciting to talk about this game particularly as well, because I feel like for a lot of these, it's variations on a theme. You know, th- these games all have some similarities in common. A lot of them are survival games. There's a certain element of push your luck. And this game really bucks the trend in a lot of ways because it, it, it really kind of pulls away from like like the wind states from a lot of that you know the approach that you know like dead of winter might have a game like forbidden island has it's such a different way of looking at a cooperative game as this sort of shared story and i i think that's such a cool place to be taking games i massively enjoy it i do actually think it's best at two people though which is an interesting thing for a co-op game but I and that's probably me and my selfishness that like there's a lot of story engagement, but you basically divide up all the characters amongst the people playing. And so mm-hmm. with two people, we each have four, whereas when we try to play with more, it just felt like a lot of lag between like when you really got to engage with it. Yeah, probably cut down on the downtime with two people because there's always you're, you know, you're watching your partner's turn and then you're going and there's not like a long gap between your turns and. Yeah, I could see that really working and well. And just with two because people. of the length of the game, you'll probably get through a campaign faster. And if there's 14 different endings and you want to see more than one, <laughs> you're going to want to play a lot. Well, very cool. Very excited for Sleeping Gods. It looks amazing. So, this next game is uh, a favorite of Ian's, and uh, it takes us into another variation on the idea of a cooperative game, and that's the one versus many. Um, and so, this is a game where the majority of the players around the table are working together against one antagonist. These games could really be a great gateway to introduce new players to the hobby because the more experienced tabletop gamer can be the bad guy and folks who are getting the feel for it can work together and uh, create a different dynamic around the table. So uh, we're talking about Scotland Yard in particular, which I think is one of the earliest games to introduce this. probably one of the oldest games that we actually still play in our lineup. Ian, what do you love about Scotland Yard? What keeps you, you playing? It's sort of a venerable family classic. For me, Scotland Yard is just really simple. And I mean that in terms of just the the approach to the game, there's not a lot of frills to it. I think that actually works really well for this because it is like at heart, it's kind of, it's a many people cooperating versus the one person and the distillation of that sort of confrontation, I think is, is what keeps this game coming back. There's a lot of, there's a lot of these one versus many games, especially, you know, Scotland Yard is a hidden movement game. There's there's a bunch of those, you know, like Nuns on the Run is, is one that's been, uh, more popular in recent years as well uh, other games in the, in that vein but scotland yard i think is definitely a venerable classic you have one person who is trying to escape from scotland yard and so their pawn shows up on the map every couple moves that they make and so you sort of have to infer based on what mode of transportation they take from each of these points on a map where they might be next and you try to box them in as a group 
I, I just I think it works really well because you really get people working together. Say, okay, well, if I go here and I go here, and I actually think it, you do have the problem, you know, with board game bullies where you can kind of have one person sort of pushing people in different directions. But I think because of how uncertain a lot of it can be, you tend to have people putting differing opinions out and sort of bringing in contingencies. So I think this actually works really well as a cooperative game. What I like most about this is I think this is a really good game for teaching people with or getting people into board games. Because if you're the one teaching, you can play the hidden movement character and if you sense that people may be getting a little frustrated or if the game's going on too long, you can fall into their trap. You can make the game a little bit easier on them. You can sort of tailor the difficulty to the people you're playing with and sort of make sure that first game experience is a memorable one. Because I think that's such a, a big part of this game and what I think makes the cooperative part of it really fun if you have somebody who's willing to sort of read the room and you got a group that works together with that. That's really cool. It's actually not a game that I've played myself. It's an older one, and there's a lot of other games. If you like play Scotland Yard, or if the idea of it sounds interesting to you and you can't get a hold of a copy of Scotland Yard, I'm actually not sure if it's still in print, if they're still making it, but games like uh, Fury of Dracula kind of takes the same thing to like a more complex level, uh, Letters from Whitechapel. Yeah, there's a lot of games that have this thing of like hidden movement. There's a secret bag person moving around the board, and we all got to find them. Yeah. Uh, but Scotland Yard strips it way down and makes it super accessible it's one of the few family games from the 80s that actually still holds up i i gotta admit this is one that you brought to a game night yet and when i saw like milton bradley and like the old box i was like oh boy here we go pleasantly surprised this game did actually originate over in europe we briefly talked about this last episode as well but this game originated in europe back in uh, 83 it was actually i believe the fifth game to win a spiel to Ciaris award Venerable classic, not an original Milton Bradley, probably explains why it's more fun than Monopoly. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th I think I think it does, like, you have a lot of these newer games, like you said, Fury of Dracula, Letters from Whitechapel, these are games that are good, but I like that Scotland Yard is a very stripped-down experience. I think those games are awesome, and I do love playing those games, but I really like just getting, getting that, that really core mechanic and just really reveling in that, that very simple, the simpleness of the game, I think, does a lot for it. And the one versus many thing, uh, you know, encompasses other genres too. Like it has sort of a variation on co-op. Like a lot of dungeon crawls kind of have this where somebody's the overlord when all the monsters and other people can play the party. The one versus many is a way you can still have kind of a competitive environment but with a mostly co-op experience. So that's kind of a vibe. Although some people hate it because it is like who who draws the short straw and has to be that like antagonist. Sometimes it can be fun though. As long as you have someone willing to be that person. I, I think of like not alone if you've played that game. I have not. One one no. person is basically trying to like more or less, like it's it is a one versus many game. It can actually play up to nine, I think. Maybe nice. Wow. And it is it's it's simple but it's chic and it's it's really fun to be the one because you're trying to actually predict where everyone else shows up. It's kind of the reverse of what the game you're talking about is that people are trying to go to these locations and use them to advance their own mission. And you basically are trying to predict where they'll show up so you can kind of intercept them and advance your own objective and kind of like delay the other player's actions. So it can be really cool to be the one because you're kind of like, well, as people play locations, they kind of exhaust them. So you can kind of one deduce what they're going to have to play, but also kind of predict when you have less information and their goal is to make it harder on you too. So it's kind of the reverse of that. It's like mass movement that you're trying to work against. All right. So I wanted to close out tonight with, I say tonight, you, you could be listening to this at home any time of day. It's tonight for us as we're recording. Uh, but I wanted to close out our episode with a game that probably to me is the best co-op. That may be obviously that's subjective, but it 
in some ways takes the best of like everything we've talked about tonight, a game of complex escalating threat with interesting character dynamics and asymmetrical powers and smart strategic choices. It's just a, a blast and it has a lot of depth and replayability and that is Spirit Island. Spirit Island is a game uh, that takes the uh, old board game trope of colonization and empire building and puts it totally on its head. Instead of being the uh, helmeted uh, invaders going to plant the flag and build your empire, you play uh, the spirits of the island itself trying to repel these invaders. So conquistadors and uh, conquerors are coming to your island uh, each turn, spreading in a pandemic-like fashion loosely uh, all around, uh, creating settlements and cities and little troops spreading everywhere. And you are playing these various nature spirits. You're going to use your powers to uh, repel them and, and push them off the board. It becomes a really uh, interesting game as uh, you play it because you are slowly building your deck of power cards. And the way you customize uh, your deck and the choices you make really determine how successful you're going to be. And so you have to make really smart choices about what powers to use. The different uh, nature spirits are all wildly different, not just in the powers they have, but the way they play. It can completely change the feel of the game, playing the lightning spirit versus the water spirit or whatever. And, uh, and then finally, the game is packed with all these different modules that you can optionally tack on. Uh, scenarios and other things that can make the game more or less complex depending on how you uh, want to approach it. So in terms of a game that has just a rich replay value and depth, I think it's just hard to, to find anything quite like it. And I love this one. I mean, I would agree. I, I paired it before with Robinson Crusoe and both of them are pretty much at the top of my pure co-op. Um, I, I think the semi-co-op probably outs it for me personally, but I think for pure co-op, I think those two are my highest for basically the reasons that you've said. The variety of uh, character options just breathes new life into the game for each person. And you really can't board game bully because of that as well. Even if I've played something before, I'm just not going to be able to manage your hand in any, any way. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. That's I was actually even going to bring that up because I think that's such a, an important point for this game is that you really can't backseat game the other people. You can point it out. You can say, okay, we really need somebody to take care of this part of the board. Th things are getting overwhelming here. Uh, we can't handle this. Who can take care of that? You can call that out there and you can strategize, but it's really hard to call out what other people should do and to tell them the right moves because you don't know what's in their hand. You don't know what their cards are. Even if you did know what their cards are, the amount of mental bandwidth that you would have to worry about all of your stuff and all of their stuff at the same time, it's a lot of thinking. You're going to have some serious brain burn going on if you try to do that. And people won't let you. <laughs> no one's going to be like, here is my hand, figure it out for me. And that's part of the fun of it. You can be <laughs> like, hey, can you handle this? But that's really all you really can grapple with, like you were saying. That there's, there's just no way to do that. And I think that's probably one of the other reasons it's a step up for me is just because it just get, lends itself so naturally to a pure co-op actual feel. We haven't talked a lot about the design of games, really, in, in our discussion today. We haven't really talked about like the component design, but I really like this because it ties into the theme. Like Everything about the spirits, about the island itself, it's very colorful, it's very light. The denizens of the island are these small little like mushroom tiles. It's all very smooth and round and they're all wooden. And the invaders are white plastic, the hard edges. It's such a dichotomy in the way that the component design is made. And I think that's so cool because you don't normally think of the material that something's made out of uh, contributing 
to the theme of a game but it's so well done every i love the disparate parts of this that all come together to make it feel like a cohesive form and that's really cool to see the thought in that i don't remember who pointed that out first when we were playing it but yeah the Dehan or Dakan, who are the the natives of the island the residents of the island are all represented by wooden pieces and the invaders are plastic so they're not of nature like they are a foreign material that's like coming in it's a that is a great thematic touch that i absolutely love the other thing that i love about this game is the fact that it in some ways almost more than like any of the other games we talked about forces like cooperation amongst the players in a very real way because no spirit can alone like win it some of them just aren't like like there's going to be a spirit that's better at dealing damage but another one is like moving the invaders around the board and hindering them in different ways or or having some other kind of specialization nobody is like completely suited to like handling it on their own so you have to work together so it's going to be like on your turn i'm going to cast a wave that's going to push all these people into this block and then you're going to blast them with this thing and then, and then the other guy's like, oh, yeah, and then if you do that, I can do this. And so the way everyone's unique power starts to, like, cascade around when it starts to work feels really, really good. Quite the little satisfying game, that's for sure. Or not so little satisfying game. <laughs> that is definitely the one thing that I would say about this game is in terms of complexity, there's a lot going on in this game. I know you mentioned Robinson Crusoe tends to be very fiddly with a lot of the stuff that's in there. Some of these games do have more parts, but Spirit Island... It, as well is one of those games that can be a lot to teach to people especially because each of the spirits has a different way of playing you can't just say okay here's exactly how you play the game because each spirit has a a slightly different way of approaching it and so teaching the game is going to be a little bit more involved and so you need to be ready for that when you come in but i think that's most with most heavy games is you know when you're getting into when you're getting into it you have to let yourself have the time and space and grace to properly teach that game and that whether it's co-op or not, it's just one of those things about a heavy game that you you it's it's probably not a casual slap on the table at the end of a long board game evening with a new gamer. It's just, it's just not, and that's okay. That's why we have a lot of those other great classic smaller co-op games that we can turn to if we want to. But it can be brilliant when it's right. Curious, Carly, as to where you would rank Spirit Island for you, like in these cooperative games. You know, like how often would you get this to the table compared to some of these other games, and how often would you want to get it to the table? So it's hard the pure co-op games, I think it would be probably second for me, but I, I still like the semi-co-op I play higher just because I think those are really enriching stories for me and it's just personally more of a joy. Uh, but yeah, I would say uh, second to Crusoe for me. That feels about right. I think if you if you want a little more of the tension of the semi-co-op, then yeah, I could see those being a little bit higher. And then Robinson Crusoe just sounds amazing. I think it would probably be... For everything you said about it, it would probably quickly become my number one if I played it. I'm kind of, uh, that's, that's why this has been like hiding out of my Amazon wish and list for I a will while. say I think the learning curve of Spirit Island is probably what actually tips it just below because they kind of do the opposite thing in terms of what makes them interesting for long-term replayability. But Robinson is easier to bring new people into. So it's easier for me to get to the table more. The biggest downside in my mind to playing Spirit Island more, and as much as I've love it i mean i've still only played it a handful of times it's because it's a bear to set up it's a, it's a fiddly game there's a lot of game management you know between rounds you know you're moving stuff around and you got to do this and flip this yeah. and spawn the invaders and go over here and then to make sure you're doing all that right because you don't want to get something wrong 
and you have this cascading effect of like the game's all off balance now because you missed some crucial part of it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It is a lot to learn. It's it's a game that feels sort of tailor made for the YouTube uh, era of game tutorials. Because <laughs> if I had to teach myself this just with a manual, I'm not sure that I'd ever play it. But you know, thank goodness that there's folks out there who uh, like Roll for Crit and others who put together like very handy, uh, quick to watch tutorials that'll get you playing it relatively quickly and painlessly. That's a really good list of games. I am glad we finally got to sit down and talk about some cooperative games because I feel like in terms of genres, this is sort of the mechanic in the genre of games that really has something for everyone. Whether you want a pure cooperative experience, whether you want something that has maybe just a little flavor of you know competition with traders, or whether you have something that really is kind of has more direct animosity with maybe groups of people. There's really something for everybody, and I really like that. And really, at the end of the day, we really just want to make sure everybody's enjoying themselves. And what's a better way to do that than working together? So we want to thank you for sitting through all of those games. I'm really glad we got to cover a bunch of those. A huge thanks to Carly once again for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast and definitely brought some much-needed variety as well to the the games that we brought up. There were some that I have not played before, and I'm definitely going to try out now. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. If people want to check you out, I'm sure that most people who follow us probably know you and, you know, you definitely are, are getting a, a lot of traction on your Instagram. But where can people find you and what are some things to look at that you're you're doing? So you can find me over on Instagram at Gnarly Carly Gaming and soon to be on YouTube with Gnarly Carly Gaming as well. Fantastic. And Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? You can also find us on the gram at Dice Pirates. We're there uh, all week. We do more than podcasts. You can uh, see our reviews of games and updates on what we're playing. We've recently gotten into the genre of cat pictures. So if you want to see what Ian's uh, cats are doing, I'm sure we'll, uh, we're going to keep you up to date on that. So we'd love to hear from you. Check us out. Thank you once again for listening. We always appreciate you guys. We're excited to bring some more great content to you. But until then, we'll be here on the Dice Parents. 